What are the costs for democracy when the Supreme Court decides cases on the shadow docket? Is the Purcell principle a license for states to act illegally in running elections? What's going to happen with the Trump disqualification case at the Supreme Court? On Season 5, Episode 5 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with Steve Vladek, author of the book, The Shadow Docket. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to hear the Trump disqualification case, I sat down with University of Texas Law Professor Steve Vladek. Steve is one of the leading scholars of the current Supreme Court and author of the outstanding book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve, it's great to have you on the ELB podcast. Thanks for having me, Rick. Great to be with you. You are the author of The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Provocative title. Uh, The book seemed very timely when I read it uh, months ago. So much has happened since then. I thought we'd begin our discussion by just talking about the general ideas in your book and about the Trump years, the first set of Trump years, at least. And then uh, we can uh, turn to the Purcell principle, something that is uh, near and and far from my heart, I guess we'd say. (laughs) And then I want to talk about the new... Uh, disqualification litigation at the Supreme Court, because I think of you as one of the you know real closest observers of of the court and the justices and what they might do. So let me just ask you, you didn't come up with the term the shadow docket. Uh, we can attribute that to our friend at the University of Chicago, Will Baud. But um, you delved in deeper. What do you mean by the shadow docket, just for our listeners who, who may not be familiar with the term? And, and what did you find? Sure. I mean, so so I think Will and I employ the same definition, which is um, a descriptive umbrella that covers basically every single order that the Supreme Court hands down. Um, orders, unlike opinions, you know, come anywhere and everywhere. Most of them are anodyne. Um, but I think the, the two biggest classes of orders, both I think insofar as relevance and for the book, um, are orders denying certiorari. So this is when the Supreme Court refuses to exercise its discretion to hear an appeal. Um, and orders granting or denying emergency relief. So this is when a party asks the Supreme Court to adjust the status quo while the case works its way through the court system. Happens, as you know, all the time in election cases. Um, And and I really had two goals, Rick, in the book. Um, The first was mostly descriptive, which was really to try to tell the history of the shadow docket Um, in ways that I think haven't been well told before and sort of get neglected in a lot of both public and academic discussions of the Supreme Court. Um, And so the sort of the front half of the book really is about the first half of the subtitle, um, how these unsigned, unexplained orders have been a a source of amassing power by the Supreme Court, um, an enterprise that really I think has lasted about 99 years now. Um, I mean, you can really tie it back to the Judiciary Act of 1925. And then the second part of the book, which I think is the more provocative part, um, where I accuse the court of undermining the Republic, um, is sort of more focused on the last six or seven years. And starting with the cases during the first Trump administration, um, how the court started using, especially the emergency side of the shadow docket, to a degree it had never used it before, in ways it had never used it before, and in context, Rick, both 
in election cases and outside of them that I think were not just anti-democratic, but were actually fundamentally inconsistent with how the court itself, right, has described its role in this legitimacy. So let's talk about just technically what makes these different. I'd say typically we're talking about no oral argument, mm-hmm. often no opinion, so no explanation. Uh, are, are those the two key points? And, and of course, on a truncated briefing schedule. So not, I, I would say not just a truncated briefing schedule, but you know, as you know, I mean, the briefing itself is often not focused on the merits. Um, so you know, when parties are asking the Supreme Court to take up an appeal, their arguments might be very, very different than what they would actually argue the court should do with the appeal. Um, right, that that the the cert stage briefing, Rick, is often, as you know, directed much more toward why this is an issue you should decide as opposed to how you should decide it. And you know, without sort of the full nine yards of merit stage briefing of oral argument, there are entire parties that will never be heard from um, in this context. Right, there are sort of things the court might do without having fully thought through the implications. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the the hallmarks are you know not fully briefed not argued, almost always not explained, and even when explained, usually explained in very cursory, unsigned opinions that often have a way of raising more questions than they answer, um, one of which we're going to talk about, Purcell. So so let's before we turn to Purcell and to the election cases, let's talk about what, what's lost when you don't have a written opinion from the court. Uh, Kind of ironic, as we'll talk about in Purcell, where the court criticizes the Ninth Circuit for not giving reasons. But why is it important for judges or justices to explain their reasoning? What what purpose does that serve? So I think there are three purposes. And, you know, folks are going to weigh these three purposes differently. um, But I think they're all purposes. So first, and I think almost most importantly, is the sort of the notice that the opinion gives to interested parties, right? Like, we believe that these kinds of laws are unconstitutional because that helps to inform, right? Not just the parties to that dispute, but other states, other actors, other parties, um, what the law is as opposed to just what the result of the case is. And so, you know, if you really think that part of the Supreme Court's job and indeed part of its legitimacy comes from its ability to say what the law is, um, not saying what the law is deprives us of those explanations. So that's sort of the, the lowest hanging fruit. It's just like um, uncertainty, confusion, lack of clarity. Then there are the ways in which the lack of clarity causes mischief. So the second piece of it is how the court not explaining itself tramples on lower courts, right? So you have cases where lower courts will hold trials, right? We'll, we'll conduct extensive discovery. We'll go through every single, you know, I and T that they can dot when it comes to litigation. And you'll have lengthy opinions from the lower court and a lengthy opinion from the Court of Appeals. And the Supreme Court puts all that, you know, brushes all to the side in one sentence. That, I think, is not just frustrating for lower court judges. It leaves them wondering what they're doing, right, and what their role is. But I actually think the most important is the last one, which is the horizontal effect of rationales. That part of why it's important for the Supreme Court to write opinions is so that it binds itself. And, you know, I know that in this day and age, it's easy to be cynical about how much the Supreme Court binds itself, given its willingness to overrule, for example, Roe. But the notion that we start from a default, that the Supreme Court is bound to follow its prior decisions, is actually, I think, really significant in what makes it a court as opposed to just a political actor. And one of the things that happens, especially in those Trump cases, 
um, starting in 2017, 2018, is that because the court's not providing explanations, there's no way to sort of push back when the court starts handing down decisions that Rick sure look like they're inconsistent with each other. Um, where you have, you know, sort of cases that certainly appear to be similarly situated from the perspective of the substantive legal questions they present, but where the only difference is the partisan valence of the dispute, and the court comes out differently. And, you know, what a written opinion does is it provides a defense to the charge that that's just the justices voting on their partisan policy preferences. They can say, no, this is what I think the law is. And when they're not telling us what the law is, there's nothing else to defend that behavior. Let me ask you in terms of this rise that you chronicle in the Trump years, whether this is a supply issue or a demand issue, mm -hmm. whether it's just that Donald Trump was uh, flooding the zone with shit. So there was and that went into the courts or, you know, or whether this was, um, you know, the court was just taking more of these and, uh, you know, uh, agreeing to rule on the merits in ways that they wouldn't have before. Like wh what explains this shift. And uh, as a corollary, now that Trump is out, are you seeing a decline in the use of the shadow talk? Let, let me start with the second question, because I actually think that helped answer the first. Um, so the answer to the second question is no. Last term, I think, is going to end up looking a bit aberrational in the sense that there were fewer grants last term than there had been any of the previous five years. But, you know, just, I mean, as we're recording this just last Friday, the court issued a pair of stays in a case about Idaho's abortion ban that have, I think, all the hallmarks of the problematic behavior of the court on the shadow docket over the last six, seven years. Um, not explained, um, seemingly inconsistent with the standards for relief in such cases, et cetera. To the Trump question, I mean, I, I think there's no dispute that the both sort of novel policies of the Trump administration and the aggressive judicial reaction in the lower courts there too brought an unusual number of cases to the Supreme Court in an emergency posture. And, you know, Justice Alito in a speech at Notre Dame Law School in 2021 said, you know, what were we supposed to do? Like the cases came to us. Well, they could have just applied their traditional criteria for emergency relief and denied all of those applications. And so I think it's both a supply and demand problem where you had for the first time a supply of applications that were over some undefined bar for enough of the justices, and you had justices who were willing to grant them, notwithstanding the what was supposed to be the limits on their authority to grant relief. Just to sort of flesh this out, what's supposed to differentiate emergency relief from just ruling for someone on the merits is the balance of the equities, is the idea that we have to rule now as opposed to two years from now, because if we don't, there's going to be not just harm, but irreparable harm, harm that we won't be able to remedy two years from now. And Rick, I think one of the things that's really reflected in the Trump cases is the court not sort of totally throwing irreparable harm out the window, but certainly taking a more lax attitude toward what constitutes irreparable harm um, in this context. And so I think, you know, it really is both that you had Trump bringing more cases and the court acquiescing in these cases without explaining themselves, right? There are, uh, Trump goes to the court 41 times in four years for emergency relief. That's a 20-fold increase over the two prior presidents. And across those 41 applications, Rick, the court writes a majority opinion twice. 39 of those applications are resolved without an opinion of the court. Like that's, that's what really, I think, opens the Pandora's box here. I'm glad you mentioned both uh, Justice Alito's speech as well as the recent Idaho decision. Because um, that's where I was going to go next. 
Justice Alito is very whiny about uh, the, you know, the complaints about the shadow docket. I, I, I kind of picture your photograph on his wall with little um, devil horns uh, written over you. And, and yet, some darts. Right. Uh, and yet it seems like you've hit a nerve and the court has responded. So in the Idaho case, they didn't just say, you know, we're, we're putting this thing on hold and letting Idaho enforce its uh, abortion rule. And we'll decide later if we're going to take the case. They said, we're setting this for oral argument. Let's have full briefing. It seems to me that that is a salutary development. Uh, that, uh, and we saw this with SB8. This was the pre-Dobbs Texas bounty abortion decision where the court didn't just do something on in the shadows. It held argument. Now, <laughs> I wasn't so happy with what they did on the merits, but at least there was a target. There was an opinion, something that you could look at and say, okay, now we have something we can critique. So do you think that the attention, not just from your book, but more generally on the shadow docket, has caused the court to, at least in the important cases, agree to provide a little more process and explanation? Um, yes. I, I mean, I think at this point, there's just no way to dispute. I mean, I, you know, we can we can sort of quibble over why. I mean, I, I would give Justice Kagan's dissents a lot more credence than my book um, in, in moving the other justices. But, you know, Alito, not, if we can bracket Alito for the moment, I think the real point, Rick, is how Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett's behavior have changed. And, you know, I think there's a real through line, especially starting with this cryptic concurrence that Barrett writes um, in October 2021 in the main healthcare worker case, a case called Doe's versus Mills, um, where Barrett and Kavanaugh, I think, for whatever reason, now are voting a little more carefully and now are sort of acting a little more skeptically um, about just sort of jumping out and deciding the merits at the emergency application stage. And as you say, I mean, we're seeing more and more and more cases where the court is punting at the emergency application stage, but not that far, right? Where it's punting and basically trading emergency relief for expedited merits consideration. I will just say, I think there are downsides to expedited merits consideration too, but I think that they are lesser <laughs> than the downsides of not doing that at all. So you know, just one statistic here that I think helps to prove the point. In the Idaho abortion cases, um, the court granted what's called certiorari before judgment. Rick, as you know, this is basically just sort of taking a full appeal before the Federal Court of Appeals has decided the case. That used to be exceptionally rare from 2004 to 2019, which I like to think of as the golden years of, of our careers. The court didn't grant cert before judgment once. Um, and the main cases are the 20th and 21st times that the court has granted cert before judgment since February 2019. So, you know, yes, I think that that is clearly something the justices in the middle have latched onto as a way of not doing everything on the shadow docket. I just think that that has costs as well. Sure. And we'll talk about this in relation to the Trump disqualification case, yep. where I don't yep. think Trump himself had even made a motion to expedite yet. Uh, the Colorado Republican Party did, and they didn't grant that case. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, yeah. I do want to come to the Purcell principle. And since this is the ELB podcast, I want to focus a little bit on elections. I think I was one of the first people to criticize what I saw as this trend, where the, just to give the background for listeners, in 2006, the Supreme Court takes a case where uh, the uh, there was a challenge to the voter ID law that was uh, put in place in Arizona 
the challengers to the law went to the district court and said, hey, put the voter ID law on hold until we can have a trial. And the trial court said, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we're going to keep the law in place until we have a trial and figure out if this law is illegal. Uh, the, there was an emergency appeal to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit put it on hold, didn't really give any reasons. And uh, a motion was filed to overtake the Ninth Circuit's opinion. The Supreme Court issued an opinion. They treated that stay motion as a petition for cert, granted cert, and summarily reversed, which uh, I think Orrin Kerr called the equivalent of a bolt of lightning, not, not something you see every day. And the court said, uh, well, first, they criticized the Ninth Circuit for not giving reasons, uh, which is very rich given the, the what the Supreme Court itself does. Uh, but they also said that Rules that courts can issue before an election can confuse election administrators, make it hard for voters. Voters may not know whether they need to show ID or not. Administrators may not know what to do. Last minute things are a problem. And so it was kind of a caution against last minute rules. And then uh, over the years, this got relied on more and more in opposition to, and now here I'll put my remedies hat on, the four factors that are usually considered on these emergency motions, the uh, likelihood of success on the merits, the harm that might come to the side that is seeking review, balancing that with the harm to the other side, as well as the public interest. And this seemed to be a kind of rule of thumb that uh, weighed more heavily than even the merits of the case. And, and so my initial critique was that election cases, this is a factor that goes in the public interest, but we shouldn't jettison the full range of things that the court normally considers on an emergency motion and balancing all of these factors. And so you kind of traced out what happened after Purcell as these cases made it through the court. So first, what did you find when you looked at these Purcell cases? Um, everything you just said, um, right? That, that, you know, Purcell, which was not argued, which was not briefed at all in that context, um, has been understood, Rick, now by a majority of the justices, right? Not just by lower courts, to replace the traditional four-factor test with this, you know, one-factor Uber everything standard. Like likelihood of voter confusion is all that matters. And that likelihood only increases as we get closer to the election. Of course, Purcell never says how close is too close. Um, and the problem with that, I, I mean, I, I talk about this a bit in the book. The, the, the single, I mean, there are lots of problems with Purcell, but the biggest problem with Purcell is that it never explains why the likelihood of voter confusion trumps all other considerations in election cases. Um, so, you know, we could construct not so hypothetical cases where a court has two choices, both of which are going to lead to some voter confusion, one of which is massively disenfranchising and one of which is not. And I would think that at that point, we would want the court to opt for the not massively disenfranchising outcome. So the sort of the fact that the court just says all that matters is voter confusion without any objectivity as to what that is, as to when it cuts, kicks in, et cetera, has really been grounds for mischief. And I think there are two patterns there. I mean, part of why I wrote the book is because some of this stuff only becomes clear if you look at a whole bunch of cases together. Um, and you did that in your Florida State piece. But like, you know, in the 2020 election context, you see this remarkable coincidence that the court has no trouble applying Purcell in contexts that favor Republican, either elected officials or Republican states, like red states. 
And then when they get a massive case in July where the polarity is completely inverted, the, the Florida felon voting case, where the 11th Circuit did exactly what the 9th Circuit had done in Purcell, which is a stay with no explanation, um, the court refuses to vacate the stay with no explanation, right? And so I, I actually think, I mean, the I got a lot of criticism on the right for the subtitle of the book um, and for the sort of the undermining of the republic. Um, I think the election cases are in some respect the most egregious examples of the court's misuse of the shadow docket because it's the absence of explanation in like those 2020 election cases that makes it look like the justices are just picking and choosing who they want to win those cases as opposed to applying any consistent principle of substantive law. Um, and I think that if anything, that gets made even plainer by the redistricting cases in 2022. Um, so, you know, you have these two massively important redistricting cases, one from Alabama, one from Louisiana, where the district courts both say we have to have, you know, a, a second majority minority district um, in these states. And the Supreme Court freezes both of those injunctions, at least for the midterm election cycle, even though in Alabama, Rick, it was nine months before the election. And that would be problematic enough in the abstract, but then on the merits, the court affirmed the injunction this year. Part of what the book tries to argue is that you can have a different view about the merits. You can think whatever you want about whether the lower courts in Alabama were right to order a second majority minority district or not, and still think that the Supreme Court had an obligation to provide at least some explanation for why it stepped in. And that the, the lack of explanation in the, in the redistricting cases, I think, is really, really egregious when you look at all of the things that happened both during and after. Yeah, that Alabama case was weird procedurally because Sir Roberts, uh, he agrees with the liberal justice and says, hey, you know, if you apply Section 2 the way it is, uh, we shouldn't stay this because they've the lower court has just applied our rules. But I would like to rethink Section 2. And then a year later, he says, you know what, we're not going to rethink Section 2. And Kavanaugh is with him, you know, 85% of the way on that point, too. And, and Kavanaugh, I mean, I actually think Justice Kavanaugh is the most interesting justice in the election cases specifically because he writes the most. Um, and Justice Kavanaugh is actually, I think, the, the world's staunchest defender of Purcell. Every time he writes about Purcell, he sort of promotes it. So it's gone, like in, in some of his early opinions, it was a principle of election law. I think in the Alabama case, he calls it a bedrock principle of election law. Like it, it keeps getting stronger and stronger. And what's striking about Kavanaugh's opinions is he's never really defending the malleability of Purcell. He's just trying to explain why you could plausibly believe that each individual case is a valid application of it. And I think his effort to do so in the Alabama case actually is counterproductive because it's just such transparent nonsense that nine months from the election, you know, he called it a late breaking injunction. Um, when the lawsuit in Alabama was filed the day after Governor Ivey signed the maps into law. I mean, it's just, it's, it, sometimes the reason why we want them to write is just because if they write, they have to at least try to be honest. And I think that really comes through in the election cases. Well, I was going to ask you about Kavanaugh because in, I believe it was a separate statement in, during the, the COVID cases in a Wisconsin case. I think this was DNC versus, yep. I can't remember who Wisconsin. RNC. Uh, was, yes, maybe it was DNC versus RNC. Uh, he says, I thought, a little bit of acknowledgement of the critiques that people like you and I have been making. Purcell is just one factor along with everything else. Those The things we talked about, the likelihood of success on the merits, the balance of the equities, public interest. So I kind of had hope that he had 
seen the light. Uh, but but then subsequently, it's not clear that he did. I guess we'll get a test of this as the 2024 election season heats up. And I think, I mean, the Alabama case again, like, so Kavanaugh, just as Kavanaugh dropped a footnote in his concurrence in the Alabama case where he says, I would have done the same thing, even if we were applying the traditional four-factor test. And I have to say, like, balancing the equities makes the Alabama state even harder to defend, not easier to defend, because you have, you know, once you allow for traditional equities balancing, you have to account for the very real specter of, you know, half of Alabama's black population being effectively disenfranchised. Um, And that's kind of a problem if you actually care about the equities. Yeah, I mean, so the cynic in me sees this as uh, Republican appointed justices giving Republican states one free uh, election to violate the Constitution or the the Voting Rights Act. Which Um, which I think might be right, but that's, you know, to say it out loud is not to defend it. Um, And and I think it's worth stressing that, you know, just to sort of drive home the real world impact of these unsigned, unexplained orders You know, you can count, Rick, I think, pretty easily to five states where the Alabama and Louisiana interventions have either direct or indirect effects on whether the 2022 midterm maps have an additional majority-minority district. If you imagine a universe where adding a second majority-minority district in each of those five states would have produced a Democratic seat instead of a Republican seat, that's control of the House of Representatives right there. Um, And so, you know, this is why, again, I mean, the point of the book is not to say the court was wrong in intervening in these cases. The point is to say that by not explaining its interventions in these cases, the court is feeding charges that it's engaging in unprincipled partisan political behavior in context in which it would be really, really useful to the court to have some neutral legal principle it could point to to defend what it's doing. Uh, let me make the really cynical point that if they tried to explain themselves, it would be so transparently bad, as you've explained with the Alabama case, that we'd think even more that they were partisan hacks. So better for them to be quiet. But that and, and that's the point, right? Which is, I mean, this is something that I think folks who are, you know, lawyers, I think, get beat into their heads, right? Sometimes it just won't write. And normally the it just won't write mentality is why you therefore should not come out that way. Um it just won't write should not mean, therefore, let's not write, let's just order, <laughs> right? But that that's the trap we fall into, is that it's a lot, I mean, just practically, Rick, it's a lot easier to put your name on, on a piece of paper that has one sentence on it than that has 20 pages of analysis on it. And I think that, like, the, you know, the part of why we want the justices to write is because we want them to actually have to deliberate and not just, you know, vote instinctively. Uh, well, and it's not even putting your name on it because it just comes out from the court. <laughs> your oh. name only appears on it if you're dissenting and you choose to acknowledge that you're dissenting. Right. I mean, then there's, right. I mean, stealth dissents are a whole separate part of this whole mess, but yes. Right. You know, like that's always the thing. It's like someone writes, and there were no dissents. Wait, wait, wait on Twitter. No noted dissents. You know, so like, I, I will say, know. you know, <laughs> if, I, if I've had one salutary impact on everyone, I think I have beaten into the heads of most of the folks who write about the court regularly that you can't say no dissents. You have to say no noted or no public dissents. Every now and then it still sneaks out, but I think I think we've gotten there. Yeah, yeah. It's yet further evidence of why like this is actually something we should talk more about. Like unrelated to who's dissenting, unrelated to the bottom line, kind of crazy that the court can do massively important stuff and we have no idea what the vote count was. Yeah, I kind of have a, a less uh, nefarious theory uh, it's more of a laziness theory, which is like sometimes a justice is on vacation and they, you know, they know their vote's not going to matter and they don't want to 
be shown as having taken either side. But, you know, what do I know? I think in a, in a world in which, so you could have legal systems that were designed in different ways. In a world in which so much depends not just on what we think the Supreme Court's going to do, but what we think specific justices are going to do, not knowing, for example, the, the Mifepristone case is a good example, right? The, the Supreme Court back in April issued a stay of Judge Kaczmarek's ruling that would have blocked nationwide access to Mifepristone. Rick, all we know is that there were two public dissents, um, right? We don't know if that means it was seven to two or five to four. And if I were briefing that case, I'd feel a lot differently depending upon, you know, what the answer to that question was. Sure. All right. Finally, now for the last third of our conversation, let's turn to the Trump cases now at the court. So just to give the lay of the land, as, as I understand it, there's a case that Trump's not a party to that raises the question about obstruction and whether or not the Sarbanes-Oxley, which is a financial law passed by Congress, whether that would cover uh, disrupting uh, or interfering with the count of the Electoral College votes. So that that's already been granted under the normal course of things, and that should be briefed and argued in the spring, as I understand it. Then there's the Trump immunity case, where um, Smith, the special prosecutor, tried to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit, not because he thinks he's going to lose there, but because he's trying to keep the Trump trial on track, which is currently set for March, but now is put on hold. Supreme Court said no. Uh, as we're recording, the D.C. Circuit's about to have oral arguments in that case. I expect they'll rule pretty quickly, and then there'll be an emergency. It'll be back at the Supreme Court within weeks, probably. And then there's the Big Mama case, the one that the Supreme Court agreed to grant back on January 5th. This is the disqualification case. Trump is disqualified in Colorado, five-day bench trial, where a judge goes 98% of the way towards saying Trump is disqualified and then pulls a rabbit out of the hat and says, oh, but he's not, a, he's not covered as an officer of the United States. And so all of my analysis over the last 100 pages, you can just ignore it. But then the state Supreme Court says, no, we're actually, uh, we disagree with you on that one point, but we're going to defer to you on everything else. And Trump is disqualified. Case goes up. As the case goes up, the main Secretary of State administratively decides that Trump is also disqualified under the same provision of the Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that disqualifies people who engage in insurrection or supported the enemies of the United States. And so here we are, uh, Supreme Court, uh, in its order on January 5th, says, super fast briefing schedule, oral argument by February 8th, and presumably an opinion weeks later before everyone's voted. So first, give me your general impressions about where you think this case is going, why you think the court took the case, and you know how things are likely procedurally to go out from here. Yeah, I mean, so I wrote about this in my newsletter um, right before the holiday break. I think the Supreme Court didn't want to touch this case with a 10-foot pole until the Colorado Supreme Court ruled, right? I mean, I, I think that from the U.S. Supreme Court's perspective, it would have been very, and, by, and I, here I actually suspect that this is true of the justices across the ideological spectrum, that I think they would have been perfectly happy to just not have to weigh in on Section 3 disqualification um, in a novel factual context, in a novel legal context, and in a sort of type of case where it had never been used before. The Colorado Supreme Court forced its hand. I mean, I think there was no, you know, folks who watched the Supreme Court carefully, I think, could not imagine a universe in which the U.S. Supreme Court would let a state Supreme Court hand down a ruling with such potentially national reverberations. 
And, you know, Rick, it's true, like the Colorado Supreme Court decision wouldn't have bound um, the main secretary of state or election officials in other states, but it sure would have been, you know, um, persuasive authority. Um, it, you know, there are some arguments that it could have been used as non-mutual collateral estoppel in some of the litigation in other states that, you know, the Colorado Supreme Court, that the Colorado courts had resolved against President Trump, some of the factual questions. Um, and I just think that, like, you know, the modern Supreme Court, it's not the kind of case that it sits out, um, which is why I think, you know, it, it probably wished it didn't have to step in in the first place. What I wrote in my in my column, and I'm curious, I mean, I, I, I know I know where you are on this, but I think it might be helpful to flesh this out is that I think this case is a train wreck for the court almost no matter what. We have a court that is deeply unpopular. Its unpopularity is almost perfectly partisan in the sense of the those with whom it's unpopular. And it's been put in a position to basically either keep Trump off the ballot, which I think a lot of the justices are not going to be inclined to do, or, you know, put him on the ballot in a context in which he's going to claim, no matter what they say, that the Supreme Court exonerated him. And so where the decision could look like it's endorsing him. Um, and I think that that's part of why the court would have rather never gotten into this in the first place. So, you know, I think the court is very, very stuck in a trap that's at least largely one of its own making, um, right? That the, you know, the court is responsible for much of its own current unpopularity. And I think that it's not remotely obvious, as, as obvious to me as it apparently is to a bunch of pundits out there, that the court's going to affirm and keep Trump off the ballot. I think this case is really messy. And if I were the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh, I would be trying to figure out what the heck we can do to forge some kind of consensus across the bench. All right, let me get really into the weeds here. So before Trump filed his cert petition, there was a separate cert petition raising three discrete issues filed by the Colorado Republican Party, followed by a motion to expedite from the Colorado Republican Republican Party, followed by the Trump challengers asking for even more expedition. Trump's brief, which apparently was ghostwritten by Jonathan Mitchell, was a blob of a question presented. It just said, looking at everything in the world, right. is Trump disqualified? Right. And and the, the, the challengers come back and say, we discern in Trump's brief seven discrete issues. We think you should grant five of them. And the Supreme Court just says, we're going to hear the case. Now, maybe it was the press of time. Maybe we're going to get some pinpointed questions uh, or maybe not. But it seems to me that, you know, if you're Trump's lawyer or your you know, lawyer for the challenger, lawyers for Colorado, you don't have enough pages. to Some of these issues, you know, who counts as an officer of the United States? Does Congress need to have authorized, um, you know, states to... Uh, Engage right. in the practice of trying. these things could alone take up all of the words of a brief. So, what do you make of the blob of the question presented and the failure to clarify? Um, I think the failure to clarify might be temporary. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if I mean, it, the, the, an order would have to come pretty soon since President Trump's opening brief is due next Thursday as we're recording. But I guess I would not be surprised. Maybe not an order about briefing, but Rick, if as we get close to argument. If the court issues an order saying, the, you know, in addition to the issues raised by the parties, we expect counsel to be prepared to discuss the following questions. They've done that before. Um, I think, so I think two things are true. I think the court was in a big old hurry. And I think that they had the sense that the Trump petition was a more comprehensive vehicle 
for whatever they want to do than the Colorado Republican Party petition. And I think that might be right. I will also just say that notwithstanding the lack of love lost for Jonathan Mitchell, I think Trump's petition is better than the Colorado Republican Party's petition, just in how it describes what the issues are and how it sort of, I mean, yes, it's a bit of a mush of how of all the issues, but I think it's, it's, it covers more of what I think is really at stake before the Supreme Court. From the court's perspective, I mean, this is part of why, you know, folks online are like, why aren't they moving even faster? This is a really complicated case. And, you know, the, the, that the court is hearing oral argument, you know, what, 33 days, 34 days after grand insert. Um, I can think of three examples in our lifetime when the court has moved faster, but like, that's three. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, this is pretty fast for what the court would do. Um, and I think, as you said, it's with an eye, I think, toward handing down a merits decision before March 5th, which is the actual primary date um, in Colorado. I think the real question, Rick, is, is there an off-ramp that will appeal to enough justices that the decision's not going to be Republicans versus Democrats? And if so, what the heck does that off-ramp look like? Let me tell you my fear, Steve. Yeah. It's, th it's that the off-ramp is Trump's first issue, which is... This is a political question left to Congress to be resolved yep. on January 6, 2025. And the nightmare yep. scenario from the point of view of political stability and democracy in the United States is it's Trump versus Biden, too. Trump appears to win the Electoral College. Democrats squeak by, maybe because of some shadow docket rulings, with uh, a, you know, a two-seat majority in the House of Representatives. They say Trump is disqualified. Maybe the Senate is in Republican hands and it leads to a contingent election. Maybe not. And, you know, this trying to get the vice president to be the president. I mean, it's just a recipe for political instability and disaster. And yet, if I'm a justice of the Supreme Court, the idea of kicking the can down the road has got to look very appealing. But there's a lot of discussion out there that maybe this is just what the Republicans secretly want, is they want this Supreme Court to kick Trump off the ballot and be done with it. Um, I, I just... I. I Rick, I have a hard time looking at this Supreme Court and thinking that that's a realistic possibility. And I say this as someone who believes that President Trump, one, did in fact engage in insurrection in the days up to and on January 6th. And two, that Section 3 isn't ought to apply to, you know, doesn't ought to apply to the presidency. Like, I, I think the Colorado Supreme Court is actually right. And even I am sort of, you know, very nervous about the specter of there being five votes on the court. Um, I think the slightly, I don't want to say better, the slightly less long-term problematic off-ramp is the really, really stupid argument that Section 3 doesn't apply to the presidency, because then you're not disabling states from disqualifying other elected officials. That doesn't solve the January 6, 2025 problem at all, but at least it limits the damage to Section 3 if we think Section 3 is going to be meaningful going forward. The other possibility is that the court packages the disqualification case with the immunity case and comes up with some procedural contrivance in the disqualification case on the same day that it unanimously or eight to one or seven to two says, but of course Trump's not immune, Jack Smith, go get him. In my column, I, I held out a completely fanciful idea that's never gonna work, um, which is that the court both take a procedural off-ramp in the Colorado case and have a concurring opinion endorsed by a majority of the justices that says, Trump's conduct was reprehensible and he should not run, and like no one should vote for him, um, right? Like sort of repudiating Trump without actually disqualifying Trump. Um, 
It's never going to happen. But like that would be to me, you know, because my paranoia, I haven't even gotten to January 6th yet. My paranoia, Rick, is that anything other than an affirmance in the disqualification case is going to be pitched by Trump and his supporters as the Supreme Court exonerating him. And this proves that this was all a witch hunt. This proves that the January 6th defendants really are hostages, especially if you take Fisher into account, right? Like, you know, the Supreme Court has made clear that none of that, this was all much ado about nothing. And therefore I'm clean. And if I'm the Supreme Court, like, that is the last thing I can afford at this particular moment in the Supreme Court's history, um, which goes back to why I think this was always a trap, like the, the Admiral Akbar meme. I, you know, I sort of, I bang my head into the wall because I, I think the, the right answer is to affirm. I just have such a hard time believing that that's what the court is going to do. And all the other choices are bad ones. And do you think it matters if it's six three seven two eight one? Enormously. If this Supreme Court hands down a six to three decision that splits on ideological lines about whether President Trump is disqualified, I think that's, if we thought public support for the court was eroding already, um, holy mackerel, like that would be, uh, let me back up a second. I mean, I, you know, Rick, you and I came up as law professors in the aftermath of Bush versus Gore. Um, and, you know, say what you will about Bush versus Gore, I think it is worth emphasizing that the Supreme Court was only in a position to hand down Bush versus Gore because the court in October, November, December of 2000 was a heck of a lot more popular. A lot of folks say, well, they did Bush versus Gore. Yeah, that was, and they expended a lot of credibility and a lot of capital, right, to decide Bush versus Gore. I don't think they have the capital to do that again. Part of what I'd be really worried about right now if I'm Chief Justice Roberts is like, how do we avoid the impression that this is Bush versus Gore part two? Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. A lot of questions unanswered. Um, at least it was not resolved on the shadow docket. <laughs> I think we could say Yet. that. If you were laying odds about there being major emergency applications in October and November that have potentially election-altering consequences, I would not be confident about it. So, you know, I, I, this is for another time, but I think Moore versus Harper increases the chances of shadow docket mischief come this fall. Oh, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know... People who have celebrated Moore versus Harper as a death knell to the independent state legislature theory uh, don't know what it means for a state court to arrogate the power of a state legislature. No one knows what it means. I mean, that's well, the problem. Well, we, and we we'll may find not out. find out. We may, well, we may find out its application, but not know how it's being applied. And therein lies the great joy and mystery of the shadow docket. Well, on that note, uh, Steve, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll uh, talk again maybe uh, after we get a ruling from the Supreme Court in at least some of these cases. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time. <laughs>